Thank you so much, Chimelma, and to Chris and the team for leading us this morning in worship. Let's, let's pr- pause and let's pray together. Father, I pray that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And I pray that the words of this message would, Father, faithfully align by your grace with the words of the passage that's just been read for us. That my words would not distract. And Father, I pray that my words would certainly not detract from your word. My words are human words and they don't give life, but your word gives life. And Father, life is what We need each and every one of us. We need your grace. We need your presence. We need your life-giving power through your word this morning. And so help, we pray, for us to hear and for us to respond. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come, as you may have detected from the passage that was just read for us, we come to the final part of Jesus' most famous sermon. We come to the close, or you might say the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount in the passage that was just read for us. And we see that Jesus' sermon here ends like any good sermon ends. That is to say, it ends with a call to respond. So the way good sermons end, they end with a call to action and a call to respond. At least that's what you, they teach you in seminary. And that's what you read in the preaching books, right? Any sermon worth its salt is to have a call to action, some clear summons to do something, respond in some way in light of what has been preached or what has been taught. Those who teach preaching, those who write about preaching, love to quote the well-known preacher and writer A.W. Tozer. Some of you may know the name A.W. Tozer. He was a, he's a great writer. Uh, he was also a great preacher. And Tozer himself stressed the importance of a ne- the necessity of a call to respond. Really wasn't a sermon until the biblical content you're preaching turns the corner into a call to action and response. And Tozer's very clear on this, and those who teach preaching love to quote this passage from one of Tozer's books, and this is what he says. There is scarcely anything so dull and meaningless as Bible doctrine taught for its own sake. Truth, divorced from life, is not truth in its biblical sense, but something else, something less. No man is better for knowing that God in the beginning created the heaven and the earth. The devil knows that. So did Ahab and Judas Iscariot. No man is better for knowing that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die for their redemption. In hell, Tozer says, there are millions who know that. Tozer goes on to say, quote, Theological truth is useless... Until it is obeyed, the purpose behind all doctrine is to secure moral action. 
Now, Jesus evidently must have had Tozer when he was in seminary. Because his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, does exactly what Tozer advises. Not simply a lecture about Bible truth, but a call to action. Jesus moving in the Sermon on the Mount that begins in chapter 5, here to the passage just just read for us is the culmination, a call to some kind of moral response or moral action. Notice how Jesus doesn't end the Sermon on the Mount where preachers sometimes end their sermons, which is a simple summary statement of what they've just said. He doesn't end, you see, in verse 12. Look in your Bible. He doesn't end in verse 12, which is the summary of all of the content of the Sermon on the Mount. Everything he said in chapters 5, 6, and the beginning part of 7, he summarizes there in verse 12 with what we call the golden rule. You should love your neighbor as yourself or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He doesn't stop there. He goes on, rather, to insists that this theological truth is useless, you might say, until it's obeyed. Or he's doing, in Tozer's words, what Tozer advises, he's trying to secure moral action. Jesus wants a response from his followers. Jesus wants a response from you and me this morning. And what is the response Jesus is calling for? You find it there in one word, I think, in the passage. It's in the imperative mood in Greek. That means it's a command. That means it's an exhortation. It's a a call to do something. It's there at the beginning of verse 13. It's very hard to miss. It is the word there at the beginning of verse 13, enter. Look there in your Bible. Enter, Jesus says, by the narrow gate. Don't stand outside. Don't admire it from afar. But enter, take the necessary steps, and go inside. But go inside to what? Enter into what? From Jesus' perspective, what he's inviting us, calling us to enter into, is enter into the kingdom of heaven. That is the place where God reigns and God rules. That's what the kingdom of heaven is, the place where God reigns and God rules. It is the sphere, you might say, of God's sovereignty in the world and his sovereignty in our lives. And this is what Jesus is calling us to enter into, the sphere of God's sovereignty in the world and in our lives, what he calls the kingdom of heaven. And this is at the heart of Jesus' preaching, right from the beginning. Turn back in your Bible to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, probably just a page or two back in your Bible, and you can see how Matthew describes what is really at the heart of the preaching and teaching ministry of Jesus, and it is this entering into the kingdom of heaven, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, Matthew writes, saying, here's his message in a nutshell, repent, that's a way of talking about entering, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. Enter into the kingdom of heaven because it's both a present reality we enter into now in this life and it's a future reality, the Bible says, that we enter into in the next life. It's what the Bible calls elsewhere the new heavens and the new earth. 
But notice what Jesus says about entering, verse 13. Look there, entering into the kingdom of heaven. It is, to put it very simply, it is not easy. In fact, it's hard. It's what Jesus says anyways. Look at verse 13. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and therefore those who enter by it are many. It's not hard to do. On the other hand, the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it, therefore, are few. It's hard. It's hard not like calculus is hard, right? I've told you before, I failed calculus my spring semester, my senior year of high school. Calculus is hard. It's not like hard like running Chicago Marathon either, right? I mean, I haven't done that. Some of you, God bless you, have done that and are planning to do that, and and that sounds hard, and I bet that is hard. It's not hard like that either. It's hard, rather, like patience is hard, or humility is hard, or self-sacrifice is hard, or love and trust and faith are hard. It's hard in that sense. So how do we enter? Well, the answer to that question is, again, found in one simple word repeated and emphasized in this passage. But I should tell you, this one word that explains how we enter into the kingdom of heaven, it is a word that makes Protestant evangelicals a bit nervous. Because it is the word do, not the word believe. It is the word do. You see, the right response to Jesus' preaching and teaching, not according to Todd, but according to Jesus himself, is always the same. And it's captured in this passage by a single word in Greek, poieo, translated in English in this passage as do. So look at verse 21, it couldn't be more clear. Look at verse 21, captures the essence of what Jesus is looking for by way of response, and the response is this, quote, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Or look at verse 24, drop your eyes down a few verses to verse 24, quote, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Drop your eyes down another verse or two to verse 26, and you see that he emphasizes the same, makes the same point, but puts it in the inverse, right? Negatively, he puts it where he says of people that fail to do the will of God, quote, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. That's not a good idea, right? And so, too, lift your eyes up to verses 15 through 18, and what you see there is the metaphor of bearing fruit. Jesus uses that as well. And actually, in the Greek, it's the word, it is the same word, Greek word, poieo, but we translate it metaphorically here as bear good fruit, not do good fruit, but bear good fruit. The importance of, as Jesus says, verse 17, look there, every healthy tree bears good fruit, does good fruit, you might say, produces the desired result. And so Jesus' point is crystal clear, I think. His message is like unmistakable. His call to respond is 
completely unambiguous. He's crystal clear here. A famous teacher of preaching named Haddon Robinson who taught at Gordon-Conwell Seminary for a number of years and taught a number of my friends who attended Gordon-Conwell. He had a saying he liked that he would often quote to seminarians learning to preach, and he would say this little proverbial bit of wisdom that always got a chuckle to them to emphasize how important it is for preachers to be clear on what it is they're actually saying. And he would put it like this, a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. A mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. That's not Jesus' problem, you see here, with his Sermon on the Mount. There's no mist coming from Jesus' pulpit, and so there should be no fog in our pews this morning. Jesus, I think, is crystal clear. If we want to, look at verse 13, if we want to enter by the narrow gate, verse 13, then connect it with verse 24, which answers that, then we must hear these words of Jesus and do them. Verse 24, answering the question, how is it that we do verse 13? We enter the narrow gate by doing the words of Jesus. Or, as Jesus puts it in verse 21, look there, we are to do the will of his Father, his heavenly Father, right? Or do the will of my Father, Jesus says, who is in heaven. We enter by doing, not simply by hearing, and what we do is we do the will of God. That's the rock-solid response Jesus calls for. And as verse 24 and following explain, this is the rock-solid response that weathers the storms of this life. If you look at verses 24 and 25, even more importantly, it's the rock-solid response that survives the storms of the final judgment, I think Jesus is saying in verses 24 through 28. But you notice... Look in your passage, you'll notice it's not all that Jesus says, right? The beginning part, the ending part. You'll notice, in fact, in the heart of the passage, look there, verses 15 and following, there are a pair, I think, of sober warnings to followers of Jesus. So that he not only in this passage calls us to enter into the kingdom of heaven by doing the will of God as he teaches it in the Sermon on the Mount, but he also, check it out, second, he warns us that there are things that will get in our way, that will make it hard to enter. There are, Jesus is saying, hindrances to entering into the kingdom of heaven. And he identifies two different types of hindrances. The first, deception. The second, self-deception. The first, you see it there in verses 15 through 20, deception that comes from outside of us, the deceiving influence of other people. The second, it's there in verses 21 through 23, and it is the deception, you might say, that comes from inside of us, the deceiving influence of, you might say, ourselves. And so notice the first hindrance that Jesus warns us about, it is the hindrance of deception. And what is the deceiving influence that comes from outside of us that Jesus warns us about? Jesus points to the source of deception among the people of God, and he calls them false prophets. Verse 15, 
Beware, he says, of false prophets who come, they are tricky buggers. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Beware of false prophets. It is a theme that runs, you may know, through the Old Testament, all over the place, a warning, a caution to the people of God about false prophets in their midst. It is a theme that runs through much of the New Testament. It's a challenge to the people under the old covenant. It is a bedeviling reality for the people of the new covenant, and church history bears this out even down to the present day. Some of you may be hoping I'm going to put pictures of false prophets up on the screen so you can identify. <laughs> Name some names. Hand out some Twitter handles of false prophets or some Facebook pages, some email address, but that's not going to be very helpful. And here's why. Because just when you think you've got a false prophet pegged, lo and behold, another one pops up from out of nowhere just like a wolf in the wilderness. And besides, you know what Jesus says about false prophets? Jesus says it's actually pretty easy to recognize a false prophet. Beware, yes. Like, take this seriously, but don't freak out nervously as though you can't figure this out. It's obvious. Jesus said. In fact, he says it twice. Look there in verse 16. Verse 15, beware of false prophets. They come in sheep's clothing. They come under a guise, and they are in the midst of the people of God. But verse 16 is almost, you might say, an assurance of, of it won't sort of, you won't be duped. You will recognize them, he says, by their fruits. Verse 16. And again in verse 20, look there. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. They might be able to cover up their identity for a season. They might be able to mask their true motives for a season. But sooner or later, in the rough and tumble of life together as the people of God, it will become obvious. The substance of their lives, the integrity of their lives, or lack of integrity of their lives, will be the dead giveaway. It will be, Jesus says, unmistakable evidence. The fruit of their life. May be able to fool you for a few minutes on a Sunday morning as you're greeting one another before you're seated for the announcements. May be able to fool you for a few years as you pass them in the halls at church. But over time, they will show themselves for who they truly are. It'll be obvious. And besides, their teaching and message is always the same. Catch this. It shows up in various guises and forms, the teaching of false prophets. It shows up in different kinds of books and pamphlets and seminars and sermons and all of the rest of it. But it's always the same message with always the same main point. False prophets in the body of Christ, in the church, are always trying to do this. They're always trying to drive a wedge between hearing and doing. Catch that. And their strategy when they drive the wedge between hearing and doing is always the same. To convince you that hearing is sufficient. That doing may be nice, but it's not necessary. That's always the message of the false prophet. 
Hearing is divorced from doing. Hearing is sufficient in itself. Doing may be nice, but it's not necessary. It's always the message of the false prophet. It's not, as you can tell, I trust from chapter 7, Jesus' message. And if you read on in your Bible, you'd quickly realize it's not Paul's message. It's not Peter's message. It's not John's message. It's not going back in the Old Testament, Jeremiah's message for sure, or Moses' message for sure, or Isaiah's message for sure, or any of what are called the minor prophets. That's for sure. And it certainly wasn't like this one. It wasn't James's message. James, the brother of Jesus, certainly wasn't his message. Remember how he talks about how important it is to be not just a mere hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. But it is the message of false prophets who again try to deceive the people of God into thinking that what Jesus is emphasizing in these verses and what is emphasized elsewhere in the New Testament and in the Old Testament actually isn't all that important. It doesn't really hold. That you can hear the will of God, you can hear the words of Jesus, and that's really all that you need to do. Yeah, I hear it. Check. I'm good. you notice it's not the only hindrance, this hindrance of deception by false prophets there in verses 15 through 20. That's not the only hindrance that stands in our way to entering into the kingdom of heaven. Look at verses 21 through 23, the second hindrance to entering into the kingdom of heaven from deception in verses 15 through 20 to self-deception in verses 21 through 23. And how does this happen? How does this self-deception happen? Usually in this way. Deceive from outside influences to embrace a false message that you then own personally, become convinced of even, and so become self-deceived so that you start to really believe, even become convinced in your own heart and mind that doing the will of God is optional. It's not essential. What does that look like when you see that in a professing Christian? What does it look like when they they start to assume or have assumed and thus to see themselves that that hearing is sufficient without doing? Well, I think it takes two main forms. Jesus describes them here. Look there in verses 21 through 23. He describes two expressions of this self-deception. And the one is this, when we replace doing the will of God with merely professing faith in God. Notice Jesus takes aim at this in verse 21. Look there. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Be warned, Jesus is saying, of self-deception. Be warned of the self-deception of verbal profession. That a mere verbal profession is somehow sufficient to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is very plain and blunt in verse 21 that it is not sufficient. Even if the verbal profession is very flowery sounding and goes like this, not just Lord, Lord, but dear, precious, sweet, gentle Lord. Or even if the verbal profession is all dialed in theologically accurate and all the rest of it, dear monogenes of the Father, co-substantial, perichoretic union with God, Jesus thing, right? A mere verbal profession is not sufficient, Jesus is saying. 
And we can be deceived into thinking it is. People are deceived into thinking it is. It's why, by the way, I've always been a bit apprehensive of what is sometimes called altar calls, doing or giving altar calls, where the stress, it seems to me, is on getting a verbal profession of faith and then affirming or assuring someone that the mere verbal profession of faith is somehow sufficient in itself for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, far better and more biblical in my view is to call not for a verbal profession of faith merely, but to call for the obedience of faith. Because a verbal profession simply isn't enough according to Jesus. It's not the rock-solid response he's looking for. You may be wondering yourself, but doesn't Doesn't genuine faith express itself in a verbal profession? Won't we profess faith if we have faith in our heart? Yes, absolutely, but the the verbal expression of faith is not sufficient in and of itself. Anybody can utter a few words. That's not hard. That doesn't require faith at all. Genuine faith. There's another way that we deceive ourselves into thinking that we've entered in the kingdom of heaven when perhaps we haven't. It's not just with a mere verbal profession of faith, but check it out, it is with something even more subtle that Jesus points to in verse 22, and it is this, religious activities. Verbal faith isn't, you might say, doing anything. That's why the second thing is even more subtle and potentially deceiving because it is doing something. It's religious activities doing something. And notice how Jesus takes aim at it in verse 22. Look there. On that day, he says, that is the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and not just as a mere profession of faith, but they're going to they're gonna rattle off all the religious activities they've been busy about. Lord, Lord, and they're going to back it up with some activities. Did we not prophesy in your name? That's pretty cool. And cast out demons in your name? That's even cooler. And do many mighty works in your name? That's super cool. But what Jesus wants us to realize, I think, is that it's even easier for us to deceive ourselves into thinking that we are entering by the narrow gate when we do religious activities. Jesus mentions a couple speaking prophetically, doing miracles, performing mighty works in Jesus' name. But what might that look like in our context? What other religious activities that can lull people into a sleepy self-deception as though they're entering by the narrow gate when they are not? Well, it be things like regularly attending church on a Sunday, feeding the homeless, tithing a portion of your income, going on a missions trip, helping in the children's ministry, going to seminary, becoming a pastor even, preaching sermons, leading a church, all religious activities. None a guarantee that there is genuine faith going on in your life. The devil can imitate all of those. The devil can be more eloquent from a pulpit than I can ever dream of being. And yet none of it flows from the reality of faith and love. But notice Jesus is not fooled and deceived. We can be deceived and others can deceive the people of God. But Jesus is never deceived. Look at the verdict he is going to render on the last day in verse 23. Look at verse 23. When on the last day he will say this, I never knew you. I never knew you. 
You may claim to know me, Jesus says, but check out how sobering that is. I, Jesus saying, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Is it fair to say that Jesus is not messing around in the close of the Sermon on the Mount? If there's a hellfire and brimstone sermon, Jesus was the first one to preach it. This is no joke. He gets to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he does not pull a single punch, and he doesn't want there to be any fog in the pews this morning. And so he is crystal clear from his mount pulpit. Enter, he says, by the narrow gate, verse 13, and beware of false prophets who deceive and beware of self-deception. You cannot sever hearing from doing. That is not the rock-solid response Jesus is calling for. What is the rock-solid response? We'll take a look at verse 24. There it is. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, yes, hearing is essential. Everyone who hears these words of mine, and here's the key, does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, he says. And the rain fell, verse 25, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Isn't there some Sunday school song that we sing in light of this? I'm not going to embarrass myself yet again by trying to sing it. And I told Pastor Gerald, who reminded me of this this morning, that I was never in Sunday school as a little kid, so I don't even know what the song is. Someone want to sing it? Well, nice. John, you should get up here on the piano and kind of play backup for this, right? Pastor Gerald, you know, he's an authority on these kinds of things, and so he told me that, you know, the point of that song is to say that, like, this passage is really all about the storms of life and the troubles of this life. And if you build your life on Jesus, you're going to like do well in this life. You're not going to have any storms and challenges in this life. A, that's patently not true. You might get your head cut off if you're a follower of Jesus. B, that's not the point of the passage. When the Old Testament prophets use storm language that comes on people, what are they talking about? Judgment. And when Jesus, the prophet, comes and starts talking about storms that are going to crash down on the world and on people, not least in light of the fact he's already talked about the final judgment in the pre two preceding paragraphs, what is he talking about with the storm language? Judgment. Judgment. The rock-solid response of verses 24 and 25 steadies you, yes, in this life, not from bad things happening to you, but from, for perseverance in this life, in the bad things. But ultimately, and the main point of the passage is that it steadies you and readies you for the storm of the final judgment. That's what Jesus is talking about. And if you are lulled into sleep, either through the deception of others or self-deception or some subtle and sinister cocktail mix of the two so that you sever doing from hearing, and you're over here with the hearing folks, and not doing the will of God, 
I loved the way Chioma, our dear Nigerian sister, read this passage. Because when she, so empathic, because when she got to verse 27, it just choked me up as I was standing over there because she read it rightly. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, does not do them, does not do them, does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came on the day of judgment and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and she said, she didn't read it like this, but she read it in a powerful way and she said, great was the fall of it at the judgment where Jesus will say, depart from me. I have no idea who you are. Depart from me. I never knew you. What a colossal fall. Especially when you have tried to build in this life a kind of edifice of Christianity with all kinds of religious activities and verbal professions and all of the rest of it. You've built this huge religious activity house because you've been faithful and come to church and tithing, all the rest of this kind of stuff. You're a good kind of Christian person, so to speak. Your neighbors think you're good. Boy, he's a real religious person and all this kind of stuff. And you build this huge edifice, but you don't know Jesus. In a room this size, there is undoubtedly one or two people or more that fall into that category. Have you ever put the pause button, pressed the pause button on your religious activity and asked yourself, do I really know and love and trust Jesus? Am I doing the will of God with sincerity in a measure of consistency, not perfection, but a measure of consistency. Some of you, I pray, will ask yourself that question right now with a kind of blood earnestness. You've never asked yourself that question before. Let me be as clear as I can. I almost wanted to begin the sermon by making an apology for this passage because it's so full on. But then I thought, well, you can't very well apologize for the Bible or for Jesus. That's about as sacrilegious as it gets, as though he needs anybody apologizing for him. But it's sober stuff. And so I want to represent what I think is crystal clarity on Jesus' part. He's got no mist in the pulpit. I don't want any mist in the pulpit. So let me be super clear and say this. The consistent teaching of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation is that we are justified by faith, but we are judged by works. We are brought into relationship with God without having done anything to merit God's favor. It's all of grace and mercy, but we are assessed on the day of judgment according to whether we've responded to God's grace with lives of obedience. Pastor Todd, isn't that telling us we've got to earn our salvation? I thought it was all about grace. 
I'm not encouraging anyone to try to earn their salvation. And I don't think Jesus is trying to encourage anyone to earn their salvation. It's not a call to earn your salvation. It's a call to express your salvation. If it's real. No expression, no reality. Not a call to earn, but a call to express in your life the salvation Jesus has already earned for you on the cross. That's what we're talking about. And so let me steal a a move from Jesus' playbook here and conclude my sermon like he concludes his sermon with a call to specific action. Not to add to his call, but to clarify what it might look like, practically speaking, for you and me right here, right now. Lots of ways you can be applying the message of this text, but let me highlight a couple that I think are really important. And the first I want us to highlight is this. Resolve in your mind. Some of you, maybe many of you, resolve in your mind today and forever that obedience is necessary in the Christian life. It is not optional. It is necessary. Don't be going around talking crazy. You can kind of profess faith and live like the devil and all is good. Millions of people say that in the Christian church. Millions and millions of people say that. May you not be among that number. So resolve in your mind today and forever the obedience is necessary in the Christian life. It is not optional. It is necessary. It's what Paul teaches. It's what Peter teaches. John teaches. James teaches. Jesus teaches. And remember Jesus' closing comment in the Gospel of Matthew, which encourages us to teach the same thing. You remember the Great Commission? You know the Great Commission to go out and evangelize and reach the nations. That, that Great Commission, like what is the essence of the Great Commission? It is the following. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. A call to missions and evangelism, yes. But at its core, a commission to bring about what Paul calls the obedience of faith among the nations. Resolve in your mind that obedience is necessary in the Christian life. Here's a second point of application, I think. Don't confuse religious activities with doing the will of God. They're not necessarily the same thing in your life. They're not necessarily the same thing in my life. I can do all kinds of religious activities, as you can as well, for all sorts of reasons. None of which may have anything to do with God or Jesus or loving our neighbor as ourself. But doing the will of God is all about one thing. Love. Loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. It is all about the golden rule of verse 12. That's why I think Jesus moves from the golden rule, the summary, into the exhortation to respond. So if you are engaging in a religious activity, which is everything I pray about our lives, there's not like little things that we do on the side or on Sunday that are religious, but the whole of our life. If we are engaging, then let love lead us. Because religious activities should not be confused with doing the will of God. They're not necessarily the same 
thing. Third, always look for ways to live out what you're learning from God's Word. Always look for ways to live out what you're learning from God's Word. Have a bias toward action, in other words. Have a readiness to respond. Or let me put it negatively, don't be a Christian couch potato. You know the kind that they sit in the pew week to week, consuming the preaching, going to more Bible studies, and listening to Sunday morning television or radio preachers, and they've got like their, their hand in the, the, the Doritos bag of Bible teaching all the way up to the elbow, and they're on the couch, and they're just consuming massive quantities of Bible nuggets and teaching. But they're not catalyzing any of it. Consuming Bible, but not catalyzing Bible. What I'm encouraging here with this third point is this. Always look for ways to live out what you're learning from God's Word. Don't be a Christian couch potato. Catalyze the Bible by acting on what it is you're learning. Fourth and finally, remember. Always remember. That it's not about doing the will of God to somehow prove your worth to God. It is about doing the will of God to express your trust in God. We cannot ever do enough to earn God's favor or God's grace or God's love. We cannot ever do enough. You might say that's the bad news. But the good news is this, we don't have to. That's the good news. Remember, the will of the Heavenly Father that Jesus talks about in this passage, the will of the Heavenly Father that you and I are to do, we're to do the will of the Heavenly Father. What is the will of the Heavenly Father? How has that been expressed in the world? It has been expressed this way. By giving his one and only son as a ransom for us. By Jesus dying in our place on the cross. That is according to the will of the heavenly father. By taking our sins upon himself. By giving us his righteousness that we might be forgiven and made right with God. That is the will of the heavenly father. And that is the gospel. And we should always, always remember it as the foundation. And we should remember as well, as we make our way out of the building this morning and into this week's responsibilities and events, we should remember as well that it's not ultimately, hear me, it is not ultimately about you or me trying our hardest to hold on to Christ. Do the will of God. I got to work hard at doing the will of God. That is not the point or the purpose. It is not ultimately about us holding on to Christ. It is ultimately, listen, about Christ holding on to us. Don't miss the fact that the final words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, what are they? They are not obey. They're not obey. The final word of the Gospel of Matthew from the lips of Jesus is this, I am with you. And behold, Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
And so let me close by Chris inviting you and the team back up because I want us to sing and celebrate this great gospel truth, reminding ourselves in light of this sobering passage of scripture, this serious call to moral action and response from Jesus himself, that Jesus loves us, Jesus is with us, and that Jesus will hold us fast. We are going to sing in just a moment this great hymn, modern hymn, contemporary hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. Listen to this first stanza. When I fear my faith may fail, when you perhaps leave today and make your way about your business this week, you might fear your faith will fail. Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold, but he will hold me fast. And then this rousing chorus, he will hold me fast, he will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so, and he will hold me fast. Jesus, thank you for your word of promise that you will never leave nor forsake us so that we can confidently say the Lord is my helper, shall not fear. For anyone in the room this morning who gravitates towards perfectionism and hears the call of Scripture to be about doing the will of God and thinks, well, how can I perfect my doing of the will of God? Jesus, would you guide them through your spirit to the response of trust and faith and resting, resting in your mercy and grace and finding as they rest and trust and hope with faith, that obedience is the natural expression. That as the root is right, so too the fruit will be right. Tune our hearts, Lord Jesus. We write with you by faith that our lives might align with the will of your heavenly Father. For we pray this in your name. Amen.